Welcome to Medico Legal Expert Insight. My name is Jessica, and in this podcast, we speak to medical and legal professionals to help connect and understand when, why, what, and how both sides interpret the information given to them. Our goal is to share expert opinions from the medico legal industry through conversation. Today, I've invited Tamara Wright, Associate in the Road Accident Injury Department at Morris Blackburn. Tamara is going to help us understand the bigger picture to transport accident claims. We're going to dive deeper into this area of law to understand what type of claims are possible, why she involves an expert, what aspects of the case her client is across when meeting the expert, are most lawyers wanting the same questions answered? Does she only want a supportive report? Why does she tell an expert they're required in court months ahead and then it is never required? And then finally, how can experts set themselves apart so she'll brief them again? This is certainly going to be a jam-packed conversation. So on that note, let me introduce Tamara. As I mentioned, she's currently an associate in the Road Accident Injury Department at Morris Blackburn and has been with this firm for six years. Tamara previously studied human rights law in Geneva, Switzerland, has spent time volunteering in South Africa at a human rights legal service and taught legal classes to kids in Melbourne's juvenile detection system. Her passion for social justice led her to becoming a fierce advocate for the rights of injured road users. She helps her clients access compensation and medical entitlements, which can involve complex and confusing steps. Today, she's going to help us unwrap these complex and confusing steps. So Tamara, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jess. We are very excited to have you on here today and we haven't had a transport accident guest before so I'm sure you're going to brighten up our world and tell us all about what type of claims there really are out there. (laughs) Fantastic, my favourite topic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So pretty much let's start with that. What, What are the types of transport accident claims that are possible? Okay, so In Victoria, we have a compulsory third-party insurance scheme, and that's looked after by the Transport Accident Commission, the TAC. You probably see their ads on tally for road safety. We certainly do. (laughs) Yes, yeah, they're good ads. (laughs) Um, So what that means is that if you are injured in a transport accident, then you're able to lodge a TAC claim. And if that is accepted, then you're able to access three key benefits. Um, The great thing about the scheme we have in Victoria is that to access those benefits, you actually don't need to be able to establish that your accident was caused by someone else, that someone else was at fault. And so that means that if, for example, you're injured in a single car collision where there's no one else to blame and it was your error that caused the accident, if you've suffered injuries, then you can actually get the support from these three benefits from the TAC, which is a really fabulous thing that we're lucky to have. That is really fabulous. It is, it is. Um, So the first of those key benefits 
is that the TAC can cover the cost of reasonable and necessary medical and like expenses. So what that really means is that the TAC can pay for private treatment or private surgery. Uh, they can cover the cost of medications, um, prosthetics or mobility aids. And it also means that they can actually provide um, funding for household tasks as well. So if you're not able to clean the gutters or do the gardening because of your injuries, then they can pay for someone to come and help you with that. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it is good. Um, the second benefit is in relation to loss of earnings. So that means that the TAC can contribute to the lost earnings that you've had for a particular period after the accident or periods where you're medically incapacitated for work. So that's some income support for people that aren't able to work because of their accidents. Yeah. The third entitlement is what we call an impairment benefit. So that is a lump sum compensation claim when people have had permanent injuries. Um, and Jeff, I think a, a lot of your listeners will be very familiar with this part of the scheme because it heavily involves medico-legal practitioners. Um, when the person's injuries have reached the point of being stable, then they go through a process of being examined by medico-legal practitioners in various specialities to cover all the different conditions that they have suffered from the accident. Yeah. And the practitioner's role is to provide an impairment assessment where they categorise and assess all of the different injuries in accordance with the American Medical Association guides. Yep. So really what that means is they're um, providing an a percentage impairment number for each different condition. Okay, and so then, is it just yeah. the, the impairment that you involve the medical expert or do you, is there the other two, do they involve medical experts as well? There's certainly elements where they can be involved as well. Um, you know, for the first two, being the medical expenses and the loss of earnings benefits, where there are disputes or appeals about decisions that TAC has made in those areas, then we can certainly um, benefit from medical legal opinions. So, mm -hmm. for example, um, one of the most common disputes that we see in relation to medical expenses is whether the request from the treating doctor is a request for treatment that's reasonable and necessary because those are the two qualifying characteristics that it needs to be. So for example, um, a surgeon might be recommending a particular surgery or a treatment like a spinal cord stimulator trial and the TAC might form the view that it's not indicated for that client and it isn't a, a necessary treatment. So in that situation, we would go and get a report from an expert who's able to provide us with more information about their view about whether that request is reasonable. Yeah, okay, yep. Yeah. Um, one of the other common ones we see is about uh, physiotherapy or hands-on treatment like that. Mm -hmm. And it's quite common for TAC to reach a point where uh, it feels that the treatment is not no longer reasonable and they don't need to fund it anymore. And if we're going to appeal that sort of decision, then it's important that we have a medico-legal expert who's able to provide us with an opinion about whether it's actually still indicated for the client's injuries or not. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so those are sort of the, the three main benefits that the medical, the, the loss of earnings and the impairment. Um, and, you know, the impairment converts to um, compensation based on the percentage number of the total injuries. And if the person's injuries are assessed at 11% or more, then they're able to access um, a, a small amount of compensation from TAC. Yeah. Okay. So that really yeah. answers the second question, which is why you get a medical expert involved because you, you need their expertise to be able to get that percentage impairment. Would that be right? It, exactly. That's one of the first 
points of entry, I suppose, for medical legal practitioners. But outside of those three benefits that I talked about, then um, you know we, we talked about the fact that they can be accessed by anyone regardless of who's to blame for the accident. Outside of that, you're able to bring a lawsuit against someone who's caused your injury in, in particular situations. And in order to qualify for that, you have to prove firstly that your injuries meet the threshold of, of constituting a serious injury. And secondly, you've got to be able to show that there's another party who is at least partly at fault for your accident and that their negligence has led to your injuries. So in these cases, in particular with that first element of demonstrating a serious injury, um, it's very important that we have medico legal practitioners provide evidence about you know, a, a number of issues. Um, one of the main ones is you know, a diagnosis because that's really important to the case. We need to know what the actual injury is that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, also in relation to causation because um, particularly where there have been some pre-existing complaints or the person might have subsequently been injured after their accident in another situation, then we need uh, an opinion about whether their current condition is still resulting from the actual accident as opposed to some other unrelated factor. Um, also, something that's very valuable that we get from practitioners is an indication of the person's prognosis or, or future treatments. And the reason that that's important is because if there is the risk of degenerative change or arthritic change in a joint, um, or there's the risk that the person might need some surgery in future, like a, a joint replacement, for example, yeah. then that's a really key consideration for us in, in determining whether this person meets the threshold of having a serious injury. Yeah, okay. And yeah. so when, when um, you're sending your client to the expert, what does the, do, do you brief the expert prior to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really important that we spend the time reviewing all of the treating material in the case and pulling out every, anything that's relevant to the expert so that they have a full appreciation of, of what's happened up, up until now for this client. And that includes pre-existing concerns because the expert's report can only be as good as the information that they're provided. Um, and I think that it's, it's important to know that sort of when the client is at the point where they're going along to meet a medico-legal practitioner, um, there, there is there is often um, quite a lot of anxiety around that for the client. And that yeah. might be because if the reason for the appointment is that they know that the insurer is reviewing their entitlements, then they can feel very stressed about the result of that appointment. And I'm sure, um, Jess, that your listeners, you know, would, would see that a lot, yeah. um, that there's a lot of stress around that. But, but I think it's also important to know that um, Clients are usually not across all of the legal complexities involved in the medical evidence of their case. You know, if there are causation issues in the evidence, they might have sort of a vague understanding that that's relevant to their case, but they're certainly not across all of the evidence. And so that means that because their immediate focus is on the fact that they've been sent to this practitioner because of their accident and their pain, they're very much that's very much the, the, at the front of their mind. And so I think it can lead to a situation where quite inadvertently, the client is concentrating on their injuries from the accident and they might somewhat downplay their pre-existing complaints. Mm -hmm. And at least from the clients that I work with, I think it's relatively rare that that, that, um, that, that emphasis on the accident is deliberate or is calculated. 
Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to remember that, you know, that this person is in a really stressful position and that what they're concentrating on is their accidents. And, you know, that, of course, forms a, a big factor in how they're presenting and what they're telling the practitioner. Yeah. And do yeah. they know, does your client know what information the expert knows prior to them attending the appointment? They generally uh, know. They have a general sense. Yeah. Um, I call all of my clients before their first appointment with a medical legal practitioner um, in each sort of block of appointments just to talk them through the process and to remind them of the purpose for seeing the examiner yeah. um, and to explain to them that, you know, I've got information from your GP and your physio and your psychologist to reassure them that the doctor is going to, the practitioner, the medical legal practitioner is going to have a good understanding of their history. Yeah. Um, but they don't, it's not as though the client has actually read that material. So they don't know what their doctors have written about their injury. Um, and often clients actually have never been told the diagnosis of their injuries before they meet a medical legal practitioner. They're often really curious to find out what the practitioner diagnosed. Um, so, you know, they obviously know that they've got pain in a particular body part, but they might not at all have had it explained to them exactly what it is that's probably causing that. Yeah, okay. And I would imagine because a lot of your clients would be people that don't have legal backgrounds. So they wouldn't, they're just, sort of regular people so they wouldn't exactly. have that understanding yes it's a very foreign process to a lot of people and even just the first step of coming to see a lawyer can be extremely daunting and I absolutely understand that because if I had to go see a lawyer in another area it would feel like a really big thing that's very stressful but what we try to make sure that we're really communicating um, particularly to the community that we work in is that we are able to help a lot with a lot of those stresses because we can really guide them through the process but it still means that it's a high stress situation yeah. and I think particularly when clients are being assessed by a psychiatrist if they haven't gone through that sort of assessment before then that can be um, a very a very daunting process and you know, I take care to make sure that before clients are going to meet with a psychiatrist, I'm giving them some forewarning of the fact that the psychiatrist will actually want to ask them about their upbringing and their parents and the bigger picture of their life, which might be 30, 40, 50 years before the transport accident. But I find that if, if the client hasn't been forewarned of that by, by their lawyer, then you can get a situation where they're quite taken aback by the questions they're being asked because they expect to just be asked about the accident, which might yeah, have only been 12 months ago. Yeah. 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 So I think it's, it's really helpful when practitioners go out of their way to sort of put themselves in the client's perspective and, and remember that this is a process that seems very adversarial and there's a very much a, um, a knowledge deficit between the client and the insurer. Yeah, okay. So that that um, leads me to my next question where when you are briefing the, the experts, um, I've personally seen quite a lot of letters come through for experts asking similar questions. So mm. are the questions the same for most cases that you work on or is it always different? Yeah, look, I would say the vast majority do have very similar questions and that's because the reports that we need from the practitioners are to cover the same sort of areas in most cases. But I think what's important to know is that when the questions are different, 
um, it's because there's a, a particular issue that's going on in the case that we really need medico legal opinion on. And so we spend uh, a large amount of time ensuring that we've thoroughly reviewed the material and, and provided the expert with the correct um, excerpts so that they are fully uh, aware of the situation. And we've also spent a long time crafting the specific questions to make sure that it really gets to the heart of the issue. Mm. So when we get a report back that hasn't actually read the questions because they've assumed that it's the same as every other report request, yeah. it can really mean that the reports is very limited use. Yeah. So I, I'm really grateful to the practitioners that take care every single time I send them a request to read those questions, even if seven out of 10 times the questions are quite similar. So would you encourage experts to call you if they do think the question is similar, just so you can clarify it and then they can get a better understanding? They certainly can. But I think what's important to know is that um, there are a lot of rules around interactions between lawyers and experts. And mm -hmm. that's quite understandable because if, if the matter ended up before a court and a practitioner's report was being used as evidence, then it's important for the court and the other side to know what interactions have gone into preparing that report. So it means that um, it does create a situation where we need to make sure we've proper, properly noted the interactions we've had with the experts and provided that to all the parties involved. So it sort of almost becomes part of the report. So look, my approach in, in my area of law would be to recommend that unless there is a, a real misunderstanding or a real, you know, the question is very confusing and you just can't answer it without clarifying, if it's just a situation where you're checking um, that, you know, that that there shouldn't be an extra question in there or something like that, yeah. then I would recommend just writing the report. And if there's something, you know, that you think that you might be able to add, you, as a practitioner, you can note that. So sometimes practitioners will say things like, um, you know, I've provided this report on the material that's been provided, but, you know, an up-to-date MRI of the knee would really assist me. So if you would like me to provide a supplementary report on this particular area, then, um, you know, I'd be willing to do that. And that's just helpful because it's all in the one report so that everyone can see the communication. And if we need something further, then we can always obtain a supplementary report from the expert. Yeah, okay. Perfect. Yeah. And with the report itself, when it is done, are you always looking for a supportive report? No, I, I think that that's a maybe common misconception. Okay. I think it's, it's important to, you know, acknowledge the fact that we, our job is obviously to strongly advocate for our clients. And part of that means that we need to make sure that we're briefing doctors who have um, very thorough experience dealing with particular conditions so that the reports are, you know, as relevant and as, as helpful as they can be to the court. But it actually doesn't help the client at all for practitioners to try to prioritise a guess at what the lawyer wants in the report. Uh, and that's for a number of reasons. I think the first one is really because if we do end up in a course hearing, then the court is much more likely to put weight on a report that's very reasonable and balanced and considered and very genuine rather than a, a report that feels like it's made a leap towards something that they thought maybe the practitioner, the, the lawyer wanted. Yeah. And I think 
Secondly, if you're wanting to help the person involved, that's very admirable, but actually what you can do to help them the most is providing a report that's accurate. Because if we have a situation where a practitioner has provided multiple reports throughout the claim that are very, very supportive, but then they are um, subpoenaed to court to be cross-examined and their opinion changes when they're really confronted with the, the stark facts of the case, then that creates a situation where we were not able to provide proper advice to our client early and avoid them getting into a situation that could actually be really bad for them. Because if we have to withdraw from a case at that point, then the client might actually have to pay legal costs to the other side. Yeah. So have you ever I had think, a situation yeah. where, say, a, a case has gone to court and the expert got up on the stand and it wasn't the same? I personally haven't and that's really, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. But certainly I'm aware of cases where that's happened. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's just really important to make sure that, um, you know, practitioners are providing opinions that are very clear and really communicate their opinions so that we can get a sense very early on in the case of the strengths and the weaknesses of the case. So then we can properly advise the clients. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure, you know, the medical legal practitioners would be very familiar with the fact that as, as great as our um, insurance scheme is in Victoria, and we are lucky to have it, it certainly can be re-traumatising for the client to go mm -hmm. through. So it is not a kindness for a client to be dragged through something for years when we could have had an accurate report at the start that really told us the, the realities of the case. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I know um, with the, the, the actual court dates, there's not a lot of these cases that go to court, but I know you do tell your experts that they are required in court. So mm. do you tell every expert that does a report for you that they will be or might be required in court just so they're prepared? Yes, yes exactly, Jess. And this is something that I think must be so frustrating to treating doctors and medical legal practitioners. Um, to give some context around why that happens, once court proceedings are issued, then the court will set a, a hearing date. And that date might be anywhere from five months to 12 months away. And once we have that hearing date, as lawyers, we have an obligation to um, provide notice to anyone who's provided a, an opinion in the case, so treating doctors and medico-legal practitioners alike, um, to make sure that they're aware of the, of the hearing date and to start to um, confirm which dates they're available if they were needed to attend court. And the thing is that it's usually not until the first day of the hearing that we actually find out whether or not the doctors are going to be required. And that's usually because um, most of the time when they are required for course, it's usually because the defendant, which is the TAC in this situation, mm -hmm. they, they, they need the doctor to attend court so they can cross-examine them and test their evidence. But in, in many kinds of cases, the defendant actually needs to get special permission from the court to do that. And so, you know, whilst we might have been saying to doctors, look, you know, there's an indication you might be needed right up until that day of course, it's not until that morning, of course, where we actually find out whether the defendant's going to get that special permission. So it is very frustrating, I am so sure, for doctors that have very important work to do. Yeah. Um, and I wish there was a better solution and maybe there will be in the future, but at least at the moment we do have that obligation to put them on notice and, and to um, make sure that we have all of the dates when they might be available to give evidence in case they're needed. Yeah. I would imagine though, if you're doing a medico-legal report, that, that's something that an expert would know that that might happen anyway. 
yes, but I, I'm sure it doesn't make it less frustrating when, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Jess, when uh, they've got a heap of cases because, you know, they're seeing multiple people a day. Yeah. Um, so theoretically, they might be, I'm sure, being told that they've got to be in court hearings most, day of the, most days of the calendar year. Um, and it's really only, you know, on, on the morning where they're suddenly told, okay, well, this one is one of the, you know, few that's actually going to need you to be there. Um, so it must be really hard. But you're right that one of the important parts of providing an expert opinion is understanding that this is a matter that may well proceed to a court hearing yeah. and we might need you to come and provide further evidence or for the other side to have a reasonable opportunity to ask you questions too. Yeah, okay. So do you find with um, the different reports that you've seen throughout your career, the, the reports that are clearer in the questions that you ask them that's mm-hmm. that's why they don't go to court because they are really clear in the reports like is there a percentage yeah. sort of the better the report the better answered questions the less likely to go to court I think absolutely there's a correlation there yeah yeah um, look sometimes it's unavoidable you can write the absolute clearest um, most thoughtful report possible and you might just still be needed because of other things that are going on in the case. But I certainly think that providing a report that pays attention to the questions that you've been asked and really makes sure that they're addressing all of the material that they've been provided, that would certainly decrease the chance that you're going to be required because often um, the, cross-examina- the cross-examination is required by the defendant because there's perhaps some areas of the report that are a bit open to interpretation. Um, And I think one of the big things in providing reports is that where we see reports that provide sort of a smattering of diagnoses and they might provide an an immense list of potential treatments, it really creates a a bit of a rabbit hole for both sides of lawyers to go down because we need to address all of those matters before it gets to court. So if you can really spend the time honing your recommendations to make sure that they are representative of your true opinion if you really had to be precise about it then that really assists the court and also both parties to really understand the issues without having to cross-examine you yeah okay well that actually that leads me to my very last questions for you Tamara when you are sort of selecting your experts to um, help your clients and help with your different cases, what can they do to set themselves apart so that you will brief them again in the future? And I think you've already shared so many insights on what they can do by reading the materials, Mm. by answering the questions properly and not Mm. thinking it's the same question over and over again. But is there anything else that you would add into that? I think the other thing that we're seeing a lot of, Jess, in the last year in particular, is that a lot of practitioners are becoming very well-versed in up-to-date knowledge about pain conditions and chronic pain conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, And being able to provide um, more information about really what what the pain condition is and what what the manifestation is in, in the person's body and how it affects them really assists the court and the court has shown a real willingness to accept those opinions who are able from doctors who can really clearly explain those ramifications Mm -hmm. and this is something that can extend across a heap of different specialities you know I've had reports that really provide um, very detailed explanations about pain conditions from psychiatrists from occupational physicians orthopedic surgeons neurologists it's something that's very wide-ranging um, and, and that's not to say at all that everyone who complains of pain, you know, we want a report that says they have a pain condition, not at all. But there is certainly an emerging 
body of research that's really elaborating on when someone does have a pain condition, um, how we understand that that affects them. And it's very helpful for a practitioner to have that knowledge. Yeah. So to dive deeper. So yeah, we already know that they're going through, like they've got elements of pain in their condition, but dive a little bit deeper into what that pain means for your client. Exactly. Yes. And sort of moving past um, the idea of, of saying, well, there's nothing on the scan. So I'm not sure that there's anything wrong with them, you know, or any explanation for their pain. Mm. Um, you know, and sometimes that's, that's the case and that's the reality, but sometimes there, there is a, a central sensitization condition, which, you know, the research is indicating or the practitioners are telling me this, that, you know, it's actually um, showing that there can be organic changes in the nervous system because of these conditions. So if someone is suffering from that sort of condition, then the doctor being really well versed in, in the current evidence and research about what that means can be really helpful and crucial to the case. Yeah. And I would imagine with pain, it's an evolving area as well. So the doctors yeah. continually and the experts continually upskilling themselves and going to, you know, things where they, they can learn more and more about this element would be something that you'd encourage too. Would, you be, would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it seems, at least from my perspective, like at the moment, it's a never-ending evolution of knowledge about these conditions. Yeah. But um, yeah, I certainly think that if, if it's something that fits into a practitioner's area and, you know, if they're examining people that uh, seem to have a pain condition, then it would be really helpful to upskill in that area so that you can provide an opinion about what it means for that particular person. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been really insightful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tamara. Um, you've shared lots of insights and I'm sure our listeners will get a, a lot of value out of it. Oh, thanks so much, Jess. It was a lovely chat. So it's always nice to talk about, about these interesting areas and we're always grateful for the fantastic work that, um, that doctors and medico-legal practitioners do because they're such a core part of, of the claims process. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, you have a lovely day. You too. Thank you. Thanks, Tamara. Bye. Bye.